Everybody, welcome to the 15th episode of the Future Worlds Metaverse podcast. Today's episode, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Masur, who is a IP attorney. He's kind of a Web3 Metaverse attorney. He's an all-around attorney based in New York, but I see him in Austria. I see him in LA. I see him in all parts of the world. <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you for hopping on on extremely short notice about four minutes ladies and gentlemen that's how long it took us to connect well thank you for having me i'm really excited to, to i'm always excited to talk about uh blockchain and metaverse topics i'm i'm very excited about the space uh and have been working in the blockchain space since about 2016 and um you know what makes it so much fun for me is that uh i started my career at the SEC, uh, or very early in my career, I was in the SEC for, for a, a flash of a minute. And um, I also started just before the World Wide Web uh, launched or was invented. Um, and so uh, there were bulletin board companies then, and I started working with early stage companies back then and have been very involved in internet and internet uh, internet companies, internet innovation since then. And the way I see uh, Web3 is as a continuation of the internet. And the analogies back to the internet are really unbelievable. Back to the Web1 internet in particular, not as much Web2. Um, but if you think about it, uh, Web1 was really the ability to read. And Web2 it was the ability to write or to self-publish. And Web3 is the ability to own. So uh, each time a new version of the web has come out um, or has evolved, uh, it has uh, exponent, grown exponentially larger. So I think this is the biggest one we're gonna see, uh, we've seen yet, because it involves pretty much ownership of all things. Um, and so, uh, that begins with ownership of intellectual property assets and digital assets, um, which is what everyone in Web3 is excited to talk about. And also uh, metaverse, um, this is also where the, where the convergence with the metaverse is. So I'm very excited to be on the call. And um, I should also say that I have a entertainment practice and uh, that's something that made uh, Steve and I really vibe because um, I started as a young entertainment lawyer in the early 90s, um, working with, you know, the bands of that time and also with the early Internet startups in the music space of that time. So I've worked with a really wide variety of music tech companies um, uh, from the download era to the mobile era, which was uh, a very sort of transformative era for music rights. Um, I was uh, sort of ballyhooed as a copy left person for some reason by the music industry in the late 90s, which makes absolutely no sense because I'm totally capitalistic. But, um, but uh, well, it's because uh, you're it's, so easy to talk to. I think well, <laughs> one of the biggest things about Steve is he's he's accessible, right? And and a lot of people go, oh, lawyer, I'm not gonna, you know, I don't want to ask anything, and they might charge me, or they might be, you know, just stuffy. In, in general, but you're not, you're completely accessible. You, you speak straight across, right? You're not talking to legalese. 
you're able to break down very complex legal concepts into understandable language, which I think I appreciate most artists I know appreciate and probably everybody appreciates because at some point um, we've all been connected with lawyers that have just talked above us or quite frankly, in, in, in hindsight, I realize a lot of them didn't know what they were talking about because they couldn't explain it in layman's terms, which I think if you can do that with any subject, it shows your depth of knowledge and the ability to actually understand basic concepts. Cause I think if you just keep things out of people's reach and don't let them have complete access or understanding, you may not have complete access or understanding of it, but um, kudos to you for being easy to talk to and accessible and a wealth of knowledge. And I got to say this, Steve um, moderated our, our legal panel at future worlds a couple months back and brought up the, probably the best tidbit. And I've, I've, I've quoted you maybe, 10 times in the last month, but um, it, it was regarding smart contracts. And he said he did a lot of research and realized that smart contracts were not being written by attorneys and they were being written by engineers and tech guys as part of coding, especially with regards to NFTs. And it made me think that's pretty incredible. You've got guys that are coders or software developers structuring IP rights contracts digitally inside these contracts that may live with these nfts or other pieces of digital assets forever and no one's auditing them no one's regulating them they don't even understand the basics when it comes down to ip which is something like yourself is an expert in so it was shocking to hear you say that but it's very true i mean everybody's touting smart contracts and smart contract this and smart contract that which lawyers have been drafting smart contracts Right. It, it, you know, it's interesting. Also, the term smart contract is interesting because uh, from a programmer's perspective, it's really a rule set for distributing whatever is being distributed, uh, oftentimes money. Um, and so from that perspective, it's, it's very clear that it doesn't need a lawyer. Um, but, uh, you know, legal contracts are a little different and they have really fuzzier logic. Uh, and so as we evolve, as smart contracts evolve, it's gonna become more nuanced and more difficult. And I think uh, this is sort of this undiscussed uh, section, um, you know, lawyers are aware of it. They, they, everyone sort of presumes that a smart contract drafting uh, business will emerge from this um, for lawyers, uh, but I don't think it's emerged yet. And that, and that also just tells you that the, the smart contracts that are drafted now are have, have, have by by definition have to be pretty rudimentary you know like just splitting one dollar into you know 15 different ways for 15 different rights holders type thing it's also not accessible right and i i would argue i'm sure you could argue too but one a contract has to be agreed upon by both parties or, or multiple parties that are entering into it if it's not even evident how to access it in other words i can't even read the language or the code that's inherent in that contract, how could I ever agree to it, right? And, and is there an implicit agreement when I buy an NFT? Did I sign something that says I'm accepting the terms of the smart contract? Not in anything I've ever seen so far. Right, so it's, it's the early days, you know, and, and I think these issues are coming up in, in the, the board Ape uh, uh, lawsuit, they're coming up there, they're gonna come up in more lawsuits. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the tipping point was uh, Sean Green, um, who purchased a board ape and then tried to build a TV show around it, only to find out that 
he didn't actually have those rights. Um, and I think the reason I think it was the tipping point is that it was a big news story at the time, even though probably nobody remembers it now. But um, I think that gave everybody who bought a board a pause to consider what they had actually purchased. Um, you know, did I, I guess I bought a picture, a pixelated picture from the internet. Um, and that really is what was, was bought. I mean, you do own that and there's only one of what you bought, but the rights that go along with it are in question. And I, I think that the trade sort of blew up around NFTs before anyone even really deeply considered those rights issues about who actually owns the rest of the bundle of intellectual property rights associated with their NFTs. I think it was Seth Green, but but it was Seth Green. Sorry, <laughs> you're right. It, it was. I remember that being touted as one of the value props for Borape specifically was you had the rights to commercialize it, right? And I and I dug a little deeper. I think they do provide a commercial license, which is different than owning copyright. And they there is no copyright transfer from what I could see. Like they they reserve the copyright for themselves but they allow you a commercial use. Now, what is that use? How long is it good for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It looks like you did read the terms and conditions. <laughs> I read stuff. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a music manager. So um, I, I, it, it takes an additional 10, 15 minutes. And a lot of it is obscure. Like you say, you've got to go layer to layer to layer, but the public is paying 200, 300, 400, a million dollars for Board Ape, right? I mean, I think the cheapest one now is down to 200,000. It's a lot of money. You should mm -hmm. understand what it is that you're buying. And more so, the platform should explain explicitly what you're buying. Because otherwise, like you said, it's a muddled mess and someone buys one anticipating they can create a show or some other content from it, finds out they can't, or there's some limitation. And then you get in this legal mess where I thought I bought something. Okay, well, how did you know this? Oh, well, here it is in our terms of service. Did you read that? No, but you signed that you read it and you accepted the, the, the product and you paid the money. So it's, you're right. I think there's gonna be a shakeout where a lot of folks are gonna be unhappily surprised. Um, a lot of platforms are either gonna have to go back and redo those contracts or those terms and come to some type of agreement. If you've spent a couple million dollars on something uh, the lawyers are for sure going to circle, right? I mean, there's there's enough there, there's enough meat on that bone that a lawyer is going to jump on that and say, let me defend you on this. But um, I don't know that some of those cases have come to decisions yet. I, I know they're brewing. Um, have you have you seen, you haven't seen any decisions on this, right? No. Um, yeah, two things I wanted to say about it. It's um, One is, uh, like I said before, it's early days and a lot of it is a communications issue. So I spend a lot of time with... Uh, people who are in the blockchain space with crypto people, and um, also a lot of time with entertainment people. Uh, many of the people at Future Worlds were sophisticated entertainment people um, who were completely shocked by these rights issues with NFTs, and they were completely shocked. Uh, I mean, you know, sort of jaw drop level shocked that, uh, that OpenSea would sort of bait and switch everybody and say, oh yeah, we said that you got rights with your NFTs, but actually you don't. Um, and and um, now, okay, move over to the crypto crew uh, and talking to the blockchain people about it. They don't even, didn't understand why that would cause people to get bent out of shape. Uh, they're, they're, they, you know, and, and so they legitimately don't know 
why that would annoy an entertainment industry person or anger an entertainment industry person who feel, feels like they're getting ripped off because from their perspective, they're just looking at this digital asset as a tradable thing. Um, and they're not thinking about, you know, further exploitation of it or making a television show like Seth Green wanted to do or any of those aspects of it. They're just looking at it for the trading value. And that's the crypto people. And then the blockchain digital asset people are, are thinking, well, you know, the normal person isn't really buying this for the IP rights, are they? You know, and, and it, that's a conversation we have to have. You know, uh, no, I don't think they really are, uh, but the entertainment people think they are. So, you know, it's a conversation, it's a conversation that hasn't happened yet. And these things come up so quickly that, and this is my next point, these things come up so quickly that uh, you don't have time to have these conversations. It's, it's just, it's already been a thing and then gone its way, um, you know, before anybody's ever talked about it. The law moves a lot more slowly than that. Um, so two ways to think about it. One is uh, lawsuits, the way you brought it up, is uh, the incentive of uh, litigators to find clients with a valuable claim to bring, um, or clients to find a litigator who is willing to represent their valuable claim. Um, very slow process. Uh, most of the time, a lawyer is not taking this on contingency unless it's very large uh, and not very risky. Um, you know, nobody wants to do 50, 100, 150 hours worth of work to get nothing. So uh, when people say, oh, I'll just take this guy to court on contingency. Okay, well, find the lawyer who wants to do that. You're gonna have to sell it to them first. Um, and uh, then, okay, if you're paying some or all of their legal fees up front. Well, now the burden's on you to pay some giant legal fees to bring these claims. Uh, what does that amount to? Well, I often say that it's 5,000, you know, how mad are you, Steve? Are you $5,000 mad? Are you $20,000 mad? Or are you $250,000 mad? You know, go well, to your bank account and come back to me with that answer before I start calling my litigator friends. I, I've been there. There's two <laughs> things I would say to your point though. It's one, Whoever does the first one of these cases that has any kind of success at all is going to get more press than anybody else. I mean, forever, right? Someone's going to go, Steve Masseur took on the NFTs and won. Oh, I got an NFT. I'm calling Steve, right? So yeah. you've now built your business on right. one successful case, which is what most contingency lawyers are looking for is how do I get more business, right? I'm going to make money on this for sure. Maybe what's well, a risk. That's why I'm doing it on contingency or I'm going to get publicity or I'm going to get stature based on me being that guy, the, the uh, Shapiro or pick, pick an attorney that gets, you know, high, high primetime TV ratings um, and two class actions, right? So if there are 10,000 NFT owners of that board ape or whatever, and you get one of them to come on board at a, at a case that you think is winnable, and you say, hey, wow, this is going to be a class action. Everybody else have a board ape? Come this way, right? All of a sudden, you've got 10,000 clients that may be on that same train. So funny you had mentioned that. Um, there, there was, uh, you know, again, it's fun to have been in this industry for a long time. Uh, there was that situation. And it was when the, I, I don't want to, you know, make it too hyperbolic, but when the government was suing individual users for downloading music. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and um, so, you know, some college kid downloaded some music and suddenly he had a nasty letter in his mailbox. Um, and uh, that was a lot of people. So there's a lawyer that I became very good friends with who took all those claims um, and uh, was very, very good. He was the perfect guy for those claims. Somebody who uh, was not, uh, who was very driven by um, morality really, uh, and uh, really felt that these people were being wrongly uh, accused. Um, and that's what really turned him on. It's why he became a lawyer. He was an older lawyer um, and somebody who had done a lot of uh, human rights work and a lot of, uh, of, uh, of work, you know, in the sixties, defending people's rights who were wrongly accused. Um, and so he really dug his teeth into this thing. He had no fear of the major labels or of the law firms the major labels brought and was willing to spend an unlimited amount of time to defend these people's rights because it really got his goat that anybody would go after normal people for listening to music. Um, so uh, you're right, those people exist and the lawsuits will come. Was this guy, he was based in New York? Yes. <laughs> I may know him. So there's the first kid that went down, he went to jail for downloading music. I can't remember his name. I did, I, I was part of a documentary and I was producing it with Ron Handler and Michael Austin. And I flew to New York. I hired a camera guy and this kid was a traitor and I can't remember his name. What's his name? Um, and I said, can I follow you to your house? I want to get a sense of your neighborhood, see where you live. He goes, you can come to my street, but I'm not going to let you show my house. Mm. All right, so let's, so I hop on the Long Island Railroad with them out of Manhattan. I yep. can't believe I'm getting an interview on the train, right? It's a subway train. Right. But the audio was so good. It was so, the guy had like a shotgun or whatever. This it was a very directed microphone. And it was shocking to me that the audio came out so good. But this kid was so arrogant and he goes, and he was, he was convicted and he had not been sentenced yet. And he goes, I'm not going to go to jail. There's no way I'm going to jail. They're going to give me probation. And I, I can't, so I, we walked down the street. I go, can I, is there like a shop here that we could just sit down and I could talk to you? He's like, oh, this, this shop. I said, all right. And I go, your parents live here, right? He goes, yeah. I go, you have a little brother, right? Yeah you're going to go to jail, right? If you go to jail for two or four years, what are they going to think about you? I mean, I, I hit every angle I could get to try to get the guy to, to connect on an emotional level. He was like, there's no way I'm going to jail. There's no way anything's happening to me. I'm going to appeal this. If I lose, I'm gonna, he just kept going on. I said, you're going to be sentenced in 10 days. And he just was so arrogant. And he was a, he had a, a DJ server and he was sharing uh, he and a bunch of guys and the other, all the other guys pled guilty and just took the fine yeah. or whatever. He yeah. was the guy that said, you're not going to get me for this. And he ended up getting sentenced to, I think it was two and a half years at the Manhattan correctional facility, whatever that thing is. Oh, over. The tombs is what yeah, it's called. Yeah. Yeah. It was the, it was the, the real jail. Yeah. And I kept in touch with him and he got Barry Gitarts. That was his name. Wow. I didn't remember that. Wow. Gitarts. He got out and he I'm was failing to remember the, the lawyer's name. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> it was his lawyer. And I talked to his lawyer. Same thing. The guy's like, look, you know, I tried to help him. He hurt himself every step of the way. And 
and he said it, it is a violation. It was flagrant. It was not like, you know, they sent a cease and desist and this kid just goes, oh, I'm sorry. He continued to do this and he was doing it in the face of everybody and the court just threw the book at him. But he was the first person to go to jail to be prosecuted for with prison time for stealing, sharing files of music. Mm, yeah, terrible. Guitars. He's, and he's only probably 30 years old now, 35. But he lost all of his... He had a Series 7, Series 63, all these trading licenses wow. gone because he's a felony. Oh, right? wow. It was a felony conviction, and that's why he went down to jail. And, um, But yeah, to your point, it was it was shocking to see how much, how far the RIAA especially would go after yeah. listeners. I mean, they were, go, they were arresting mothers and school teachers and people that just were listening to music without an intent to commercialize it or make a profit from it, which right. I understand the basics of copyright it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have an intent to make a profit, right? You can do something right. with zero money and still be infringing. Yeah. Um, but the pub, the pub, you're right. Communication wise, the public doesn't know that, right? They, they don't know the difference between a copyright infringement and listening to some music that someone gave them or shared with them. So I think you're right. Education's a big part of it. I think that there's got to be some standardization with regard to NFTs, especially, but anything in the web three or the digital space where the public is becoming more entrenched in the usage of the music, in the creation of other content with that music, a la YouTube, right? I mean, YouTube was mm -hmm. basically formed on music videos. People just made a video and thought, I got to put some music to it. And they pick up the best song they knew and stick it on. And YouTube was sold to Google as a, probably the biggest copyright infringing website there ever was, right? I mean, that's Google bought it for $5 billion and started to clean it up a little bit. Um, yep. You got the, the digital- You're on my soapbox, I, I'm loving it, keep going. Right, it's, it's <laughs> not, it's, but you've seen it. They, they would rather make, it's, it's tech, like you said, they'd rather jump in and get arrested or get, get slapped on the wrist than try to figure out all the legal stuff beforehand. Because like you also mentioned, the law is always behind the tech, right? Legal stuff and litigation always trails by, I'm going to say three to five years, right? Yeah. So the tech guys have to, Uber is a great example, right? Let's go yeah, in. yeah, Uber's Uber. my, always my other example of that. Um, right? I think they were, um, I'm, I'm, you know, lucky and blessed to be uh, early to many of these things. So um, there was a, a, uh, company actually created by Alex Mashinsky, uh, a, a well-known person in the Web3 space uh, called Metrolink. Uh, Metrolink was the same thing as Uber. Um, and a prior company called Celluride, uh, same thing as Uber, um, pitched to me in 2006, long before Uber. Uh, and um, the uh, person who made Celluride actually uh, was sort of a you know, study Carol mate at the incubator. His name is Kevin Halpern. Um, and he was a study, study Carol, uh, sort of a mentor mentee relationship with, um, with, uh, oh shoot, I'm forgetting his name too. Mr. Red swoosh, uh, uh, the, the Travis, Travis Kalanick. Oh, Kalanick. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, yeah, I mean, without putting too fine a point on it, Travis just ripped him off. Uh, and, Took the idea, went to uh, went to the VCs. Um, uh, they know who they are. Uh, a couple of big ones, um, and uh, and kind of said, "Well, we don't know about uh, Kevin as a CEO, but we know that you, Travis, could be a good CEO for this. So we're going to make you a CEO of it." And um, Uber was born. 
And every single person, including Uber, who pitched me on this, uh, I just looked at it and I, I always said the same thing. You're not going to get this past the New York City Cab and Limousine Commission, much less every single other similar organization in the country and world. Well, guess what? I was completely wrong about that. Um, so uh, it, it is true that innovation can trump the law, um, but uh, there are consequences. Um, and I think we're going to see a, a lot of that in Web3 too. And um, the other point I wanted to make, which actually does tie all this up in a bow, is regulation. Um, the, the regulation in the blockchain space um, has been unclear for quite a long time. I mean, if you think of Bitcoin as starting in 2010 and uh, well, now it's 2013 and we still don't know. 2023. 20, yeah, 2023, I'm sorry. And we still don't know if a token is a security or yet. Uh, and um, it still stops anyone from selling tokens in the US because they're afraid the SEC is gonna come after them if each and every one of these tokens is actually a security. My feeling is that the tokens can be programmed to do a lot of things. So some of them might look like securities, some like might look like commodities and would be regulated by the CFTC. Others are neither of those things. Um, and uh, the regulation is just as slow as the litigation. So we didn't see claims against ICOs and token launches until about five years later, which is actually pretty fast. Uh, we are only now seeing the claims against NFTs. Um, and at the beginning of, of tokens, everyone said the law doesn't apply so we can do what we want. At the beginning of NFTs, everyone said the law doesn't apply so we can do what we want. Um, we've, we've established, they would say, that these are not securities. Well, I mean, it's a test. So some are and some aren't. Uh, probably most are not in the NFT space, but there are NFTs that are securities or that would fit the qualification of being a security. It's a fuzzy test, the Howey test. So if you took your typical music royalty, that might look like a security too. Uh, you know, and it might actually fit the Howey test, uh, percentage payments, um, not considered securities. Um, okay, now we're in the DAO world. Um, for the last year or two, people have been shopping DAOs and getting people to buy into DAOs. Um, and uh, I'm very excited about DAOs and, and the possibilities of this new structure of corporate governance. It's very exciting to me. We're doing a lot of work in the space. Um, but the DAO interests are being sold as if they're not securities. Uh, so um, maybe they are, maybe they're not. We're not going to know for five years. Uh, and so the problem is the evidence is there. The evidence against your guy who got uh, prosecuted was there and can't be taken away. So uh, my, my word to people is simply be aware of what you're doing today, knowing that the evidence will be there five years from now. Um, when uh, whoever it is, the SEC, the DOJ, the CFTC comes searching. Um, now, I'm going to counter, I'm going to sort of soften that by saying that um, they're not really looking for you. They're looking for fraudsters. Uh, you know, think about a think about a young up and coming securities enforcement lawyer um, who is researching something. Um, is 
is she going to research a you know company that made a few thousand dollars and didn't win or is she going to research board ape yacht club probably board ape yacht club um and so a lot of times if you get that nasty letter they're probably looking for somebody else but um or somebody who really ripped somebody off um intentionally and with malice aforethought <laughs> to use a, a funny legal expression that doesn't apply here um uh <laughs> and um so that's that's the way to think well about i've always it. said the sec their mandate is to protect the mom and pops right their mandate is to protect people that don't know any better and don't have the resources to fight for themselves at least yeah. that's my take on it if you're a yes. big corporation if you're accredited if you're savvy they're like fend for yourself but if you're the general public you're somebody who's an 85 year old retiree and this is your nest egg and you put it into some thing that was a security and that went away that's who they're out there to protect and, yeah. and a lot of these things, even the penalties that I've seen are just slaps on the wrist. And and the players know this, right? So the, the YouTubes and the Googles, they know, hey, what's the worst exposure that could happen, right? They hit us with a $10 million fine, $10 million we made yesterday, right? Profit just from, from, yeah. from YouTube. Okay, let's take that risk and run because we're making $100 million every day. So when the $10 million penalty comes in five years, okay, the other thing is, well, YouTube was not making $100 million a day at the beginning, no. and they had to overcome. So your typical startup entrepreneur is in, that, in those shoes. But uh, Google, I don't know. Google was, and they said, we can absorb this, right? We are very well mm -hmm. aware this is nothing but an infringement engine. Even if it is, we have the political wherewithal, and, and I'll go to the DCIMA or every, what's it? DCMA, yeah. Yeah, this is, yeah, the, the, yeah, Google did acquire them. And, you know, after the acquisition, that was true. But, um, you know, new law was created from that, the DMCA, yes. uh, no, takedown provisions. Uh, and but a, my, a, my argument would be that Google influenced that law and, and yes. had lobbyists on board to help create and draft that law. So they knew. The, again, the worst exposure is X. If we can mitigate that by hiring a bunch of lobbyists and supporting and paying, bribing the powers that be to say, hey, let's, le let's, let's legislate this way, allowing a backdoor takedown provision, right? Which puts them off the hook, basically. Now, okay, we, we thought it was a, a billion dollar liability. Now it's a hundred million dollar liability. Okay, boom, right? They, they, they were big enough to absorb that. Just like the automakers, the aircraft manufacturers, everybody else that has a lot of potentially high litigation costs, but they can also mitigate by making political donations or hiring a panel of lobbyists, a la Facebook, Google, Apple, you name it, right? That's, right. that's how this our, game works. Right, but our audience here today probably may or may not have access to, the, to those kinds of funds and that kind of capital. Um, and my guess is those people are you know, pretty well represented uh, and are getting that advice from someone. Um, I think we should give people advice, you know, news they can use today. Uh, and so, um, that's, so that's a, that's a good point. My point is don't, don't not do NFTs, you know, to be, to be Laird <laughs> Hamilton-esque about this. Uh, you know, I don't want to live because of my fear of dying, right? Um, do it, innovate, do the stuff. Uh, and just be aware of what you're doing and be aware that uh, the evidence will be there later. Uh, and, 
you know that it, it, but that innovation can win so there's two points that when, when you're saying that I, I thought of one it's like the cannabis laws right there are people in jail literally in jail today for things that were illegal five years ago that are now completely legal right so if you're selling it makes hot, me angry every day steve every day it makes but, me angry that but that's true that right you are are doing jail time for selling cannabis when now almost almost no state is serious about enforcing those laws that's what i'm saying so so something that was highly prosecuted five years ago is now basically ignored and and so in in, in relating this to nfts specifically if there's something that you're on the edge about that might be red flagged quickly today five years from now maybe that's completely okay so my my ethos is try to do what's right obviously disclose as much as you can because what i've learned from reading sec stuff and your former sec but if you make every attempt to disclose to the investor the consumer the buyer everything you can about what it is they're getting right and you do everything you can to be transparent about here's how this works here's how this works this is what we're this is what the offering is even if the rules are unclear which they are right now they are very unclear like you said is it a security this guy says yes this ruling says no this is it's like which is it right and there are different types of tokens like you said tokens an nft is a non-fungible token that could represent anything it, it's literally a piece of code what you attach to that code signifies what that nft is people look at an nft as a collectible piece of digital art usually today which it isn't always that it could be an audio file it could be just a piece of code, right? It could be a token for an exchangeable token. Um, but there's no, there's no set definition of what it is. If you do your best to disclose, to be transparent, when that regulation comes in and it will, they're going to look at, like you said, how, how much effort did this person make to do the right thing, right? Were they trying to be a fraudster? Were they trying to do a one-off scam and, and take the money and run a rug pull as they call today? Or, or did they make every effort Did they hire attorneys? Did they research it? Did they disclose, 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 right? If they see that, my feeling is they're going to go a little more lenient on someone that's made every effort, hired attorneys, did their absolutely. best to do what it was. Absolutely true. It's, um, you know, the case law, they're, they're speaking to us through the case law. Yes. Um, they are, there are only 4,000 of them. They can't really prosecute everybody. So um, what they do is they find a couple of big ones to take down and they talk to us through them. So one of those cases is Munchie. Uh, it's a Howey test case uh, about what is a security or what is not a security and what you can do with securities. And um, without going into the facts of it, uh, they found that the uh, Munchie people were, had been distributing securities at, without uh, disclosing the information about them to the SEC. It, these are the sunshine laws. So your point about disclosure is super important. Um, yes, disclose what you're doing. Uh, it's a lot harder to argue that you were trying to rip somebody off if you told them everything beforehand. Um, and back to Munchie, uh, their penalty was basically, they said, okay, guys, foul, you did the wrong thing. Why don't you give the money back? Uh, and then we probably won't do anything else. Um, so that's them speaking to us, saying exactly what you just said that um, if you're trying to do the right thing, 
they may call foul on you even then, but they're probably not going to, you know, give you jail time. Uh, they may just ask you to give the money back. Yeah, they're they're not to me. They're not the big ogres. In fact, I think they're playing catch up ninety percent of the time. Um, they are trying to. I know they're they're talking to industry to try to help draft the guidelines and regulations because they don't even know the space, right? They're they're lawyers, most of them, and they and they come in and go, tell us how we can legislate. How can we craft regulation around what's real? Because they don't even know what's real, right? Give us the state of the art. Tell us where the holes are. Let's see if we can make this something that makes sense for for the general public. Again, it's if you're an institutional investor, doesn't apply to you. If you're you know, big, big, you know, Fortune 100 company doesn't apply to you really, um, except on the on the other side. Although, you know, you see guys like the this Sam Bankman-Fried thing, which is just crazy, where there's a kid that I think was pushing every limit he could. I, I don't think he was benign. I don't think he didn't know anything. I think he was smart enough and and had underlings that did things that maybe on, on his behest or not as his behest, but yeah. Yeah. What he has does has, uh, frankly, it has nothing to do with blockchain technology. Nothing. Um, other, nothing. other than that, the assets that he was using to steal money from people were blockchain assets. Um, uh, that was a centralized exchange, which is not a DEX or a decentralized exchange. Uh, and basically, you know, there's the phrase, uh, not, not your keys, not your crypto. Uh, and what it means is if you give somebody else your keys, it's their crypto. Uh, that's the positive way of saying it. Um, and everybody who invested in FTX gave SPF their key, and then he took all the money and invested it somewhere else and lost it. So, uh, that isn't a crypto problem. That's just straight up fraud. Straight up. And, and you're right. People conflate it with blockchain, with Bitcoin, like, no, 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 it's got nothing to do with crypto at all. It's an exchange issue. It's as if your bank, Bank of America, had took all the money out of the bank accounts and put it in some weird investment and you couldn't get it anymore. It's got nothing to do with the, yeah, the value of the dollars got nothing to do with Bank of America. But this guy was running an exchange much deeply, more deeply connected than I thought. I mean, you're seeing stuff still come out going, wow, look at Binance. Maybe there's exposure, right? Look at crypto.com, whatever. There's a couple other players that had some exposure. Um, I think there, there's due to be shakeouts and hopefully this was a, a good warning to those that didn't really do due diligence. Um, I know a lot of money was spread amongst, again, a lot of politicians. He's got lobbyists on both sides that are protecting him and we'll see what happens with that stuff. But um, I, yeah, I mean, it's shocking the lack of due diligence on even the investment side, right? I mean, he had to have millions well, of dollars in crazy because of the, you know, the, the, the many clients I've represented in venture capital deals, uh, we do a lot of venture capital deals and um, they ask our clients all those questions. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a, it's a proctology exam like you've never seen for our clients that are smaller companies. I don't know how, I don't I've know been how there. Yeah. managed to walk through that with no questions being asked. Yeah, where's the audit? Where's the Deloitte audit, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's you're talking about hundreds of millions, even into the billions of dollars. You think they'd be audited by a Deloitte or a you know a Ernst and Young or somebody? And and if they were, where are the red flags? Right, no controls offshore. Uh, it just ah uh, yeah. So yeah, hopefully that 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 just brings in proper regulation. 
proper disclosures. It, it opens the market up legitimately. Um, I don't know that it needs to slow any growth, but it will make people aware of what they're buying and, and what they're transacting and building. Um, and I, I, back to the first point where, you know, the smart contracts aren't being written by lawyers. People need to understand that IP is a big, big part of these transactions. Yeah. From NBA top shots down to board apes. It's people thought they bought this video clip and they're like, Oh, I'm going to put that on my TV show. It's like, no, you're not right. You, you basically bought a recording with personal consumption rights. That's kind of it. And I think it was pretty, I shouldn't say it's pretty explicit. It was in the fine print because I read some of the fine print, but again, you're offering something that looks like a video clip for sale and and you're going to pay 10 grand for a video clip. I better be able to play that wherever I want. I better be able to use that. But like you said, there are limits. And I think the concept of ownership is something that people need to be educated on because I can't even define it in all, in, all instances. Um, you know, you buy a CD back in the day or you buy a vinyl record today. Do you own that song? Well, you know, all of this is consistent with what I would call uh, crypto ethics or blockchain ethics. Um, uh, the whole idea is transparency um, and immutability. Uh, so the, the rights issues, you know, technically on a very high level, blockchain should solve all music rights issues. Uh, all content rights issues. That's what the purpose of the technology is, is to provide a, a clear record of provenance and transparency and the ability to, to pay in a trustless environment. So um, now we're at, you know, NFTs, nobody knew what those were. I guess we needed to go through that whole NFT trading cycle. Now everyone knows what they are. Um, and in fact, they're going to get a new name called digital assets so that people, uh, so that it doesn't obfuscate what's going on and, um, digital assets, uh, the rights issues, you know, back to smart contracts are going to be coded into them and it's going to extend beyond digital assets to physical assets and already is extending to real estate and to cars and to your mobile phone. Um, and uh yeah it's good there's there's just a lot of growth we're very early in the in the cycle of that and uh the crazy things that happened in the early market are happening um so it's an exciting time i think so i gotta ask you one more question we're pretty close to the end of the hour here but it's it's just you know i, I see this every single day where do you think the impact of chat gpt is on the legal industry on what we're, on, on, on the legal industry. So in my history with lawyers, and I've probably hired a hundred lawyers without exaggeration, 90% of the work is templates. Thank you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying they're not good people. They're not good lawyers or they don't do good work, but honestly, right. If you're drafting a record contract, you're not going to go, okay, where's my blank sheet of paper and let's start. You take a template for a record label contract and you say, okay, I'm going to change this word, that, and you change all the terms, you make it work, and then you spit it Benefit out. Benefit and a flaw. Um, I mean, the fact that we look to precedent is a benefit because we build on what was built before. Um, every record deal is not the same, but a lot of the record deal is the same. And yeah, you're right. We take the template and then we 
adapt it to the situation. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of legal work involved in that. Um, I don't think, uh, I can't really speak for all lawyers, but I think most lawyers don't really want to just make money on rinse repeat. I think most lawyers want to be creative and, and add value in addition to what is already in the form. Um, and when something, something does become templatized, we're overjoyed. Um, you know, I, I, I'm certainly in our practice, we've always attempted to take that model and apply it to our businesses. You know, uh, if it's a music licensing business, we would create one license and then come back six months later and ask, you know, what were the clauses in here which were problematic to people? We'll knock the corners off of those so you don't have to come back to us again and you're only coming to us for the big stuff. Um, that's, that's the way most lawyers think about it. Um, so that's the benefit of the templates. The problem with the templates and with precedent level thinking, generally speaking, is that when you do actually have something new, the lawyers are always looking for a precedent and, and they don't know what to do. You ask them what to do and they don't know what to do. Um, and they just tell you the law over and over again. And the, the, the complaints you were making at the beginning of our podcast are what it feels like to you when the lawyer uh, doesn't know what you're talking about and doesn't know how to handle it and doesn't know which template to use. And it takes an unusual and creative lawyer to sit down with a blank page. Um, with our associates and our interns, I usually will tell them to do that. You know, just, just do the exercise, sit down with a blank page and write the contract from scratch because there's so much terrible legal drafting involved in adapting one thing to the other. And you know, this is what came, this is where the language of legalese came from. I mean, we should be writing these contracts in the English language if we're you know, writing for an English speaking country. Uh, that's how it should be. And um, lawyers who have written a contract from scratch, uh, you learn so much from it. It's, it's just an incredible exercise. It's like, and I would suggest to everybody, every American, read the constitution. It's 33 pages long. You can do it. Um, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You learn so much from these simple exercises. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think that automation and AI is going to affect the legal industry, but I think it'll affect it in a good way. Uh, the same way that we don't use mimeographs and uh, copies and we don't use bike messengers to get our stuff or, or mail or gas to get our, our information around anymore. Now, you hit it on the head. I think in the first two sentences, you said it will take the creative part and make that your focus versus the menial templated part, right? So yeah. if AI handles all the menial stuff, it says, look, all the jargon on you know, claims and where do I send a notice, all, all the, you know, the, the boilerplate stuff. And you can now focus on the terms and, and really how does this relationship or agreement work? How does this play upon this? Those are the things that maybe the AI can't figure out because it isn't written somewhere, right? You have to take the elements specific to that contract and integrate them in your mind. Maybe AI gets there at some point. But that's really where the meat of your time and, and where your value is, I think, not in, hey, can you write like a, a legal, you know, disclosure at the end of it? Like, like that's just boilerplate. So I'm with you. I think that the AI, if it can, if it can help you do less menial and more creative work, 
in other words, getting to the meat of the value, then it's helpful. But this tool is, it'll spit out. I mean, it, it's able to scan the vast internet for information, precedent, other cases, other opinions, and put it down succinctly in a matter of seconds, right? And, and it could be completely wrong, but I'm not saying it's not a bad place to start, right? If it, if it gave you a block like this and you had to hone it down and whittle it down to make it the right way you want it polished, there's value to that versus I got to start. Uh, absolutely zero. there is. And you know, the writer's tools now do that as well. Um, and writers are using those lawyers have not really started to adopt those yet, but it's all coming. Um, and you know, I, before the end of the hour, I should just go back to what, where was the where does the copyright law come from? Well, the copyright clause in the constitution is one sentence or one clause and short, and it's a balancing test. Uh, it doesn't say that you get to own everything. It says that you should be able to profit from building upon what other people have built so that we have progress and progress continues to happen. And um, that that's a very good point. Most people don't get lost. that. They yeah. think it's only about protecting a specific owner, but yes. in reality, it's about bringing in all ideas, giving you a period of time in which there's some protection so you can hone that out and flesh it out and then letting other people take that idea and build upon it, which is a, is a completely different concept from I own it forever. See you later. Which yeah. And, and there's so many anal analogs to what coders do and what lawyers do. Very similar in code um where you you know you build you have component where that somebody built 10 years ago and you just use that because that's what everybody uses and then you use you, your creative part is the new thing um and that's that's what we that's what we should do as as attorneys um and uh you know i just want to draw some analogies um uh, web one web three web web one web three analogies um my favorite one is uh facebook uh, meta. Uh, meta is AOL, um, pretty much exactly the same as AOL. Um, a walled garden that nobody wants to play in because they'd rather play on the open internet. Um, and uh, it's very similar and metaverses are very similar to the early open internet um, in that everyone thinks they haven't seen a metaverse, but they're looking at the metaverse every day through their mobile phone and their computer screen and right now we're talking on, the, on a metaverse and there are hundreds of metaverses. Uh, and it's just that they aren't necessarily all fully immersive VR metaverses. Um, and so it's, that is what's happening in web three. It's a new evolution of the internet um, that will not be all that easy to predict other than to say that what I said at the beginning is true. It's ownership now. So think about uh, that as an entrepreneur, as a artist, um, how do I capitalize on my ownership? And there's also a pendulum situation happening here. Uh, it's the old client server pendulum. Um, should we have more power on the computer that's in your hand or should we have more power in the cloud? Um, and it's this very similar pendulum uh, swing situation now uh that we have to look at with web3 um where 
we have all moved in the music space anyway. We've moved to Spotify and SoundCloud and other streaming services. Well, that is housing the data in the cloud and accessing the data so that these download issues that we talked about are not a problem anymore. And normal users who are only going to listen get a Spotify account and they can listen to anything they want. Um, and uh, that is, you know, almost completely on the cloud side and not the client side. NF music NFTs that people sell, that's swinging back to the, to the uh, you know, owning this piece of digital asset that sits on my computer and I get to listen to it and nobody else does. That's a completely different model. And uh, we have to really think about how in the next five years or however long, those models will develop. You're one of the first people to actually say that because I've thought the same thing. It's like we are swinging back to CDs, right? When you're buying yeah. NFT, that's like buying a download. That's like Apple iTunes circa 2015, right? I mean, that's that was that model, which by the way, has a huge amount of profit margin compared to a stream. And now that you could package in other elements with that NFT, maybe it works as a ticket, maybe it works as a piece of digital art, what have you, there is an opportunity to jack that price up, right? So instead of, I bought it for $10, maybe I bought it for $1,000 because it includes admission to this. Yeah, or... you're jacking the price up by adding value. Correct, correct. Which is different than a CD or a piece of vinyl, 100%. And, and, and Remember it's being CD done- boom? What's that? <laughs> The CD-ROM boom that, that preceded the internet boom? <laughs> yes. Well, and it's also being done, to your point, by the creator more than a third party now, right? So if I am, I don't have a label, I'm writing some music and I want to put it out on NFTs, I can control that spigot. I don't have to have Apple iTunes in the middle or, or anybody or Atlantic Records in the middle. I can do that myself. So I was going to mention the other thing besides ownership with Web3, to me is the creator consumer blur, right? You are now consuming and potentially creating at the same time. I could be a musical artist that's buying a, a visual piece of art, but I'm creating audio art on my side and someone else is gonna use my audio art and be a consumer of that and put it in their project, right? So instead of just being a flat wall between retail creators and consumers, that's starting to blend where many times I'm creating something, but I'm also consuming. And, and again, back to your point, the ownership stake in that is I think what's gonna drive that economy where you're not getting that in web two and web one where Facebook and Google and everybody owns, those companies own those things. You can play in their playground. It's like Roblox, right? You can go play on Roblox, you can buy digital skins on Roblox, but that economy is kind of off on their, on their side. Whereas if you go into Centraland or Sandbox, you can create that economy, you can create those digital goods and own them and control those sales and commission those sales and sell your property, rent your property, build your property, develop it. That's on you versus playing in someone else's world where they're benefiting from your attention. You're, they're running ads against you being there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's one of the big changes also. But ownership to me, is it's the bottom line in that difference. Yep. Uh, and ownership of your own personal data. You know, hopefully we we will get to a point where we own our personal data and can meter it out. 100%. Steve, thanks so much for hopping on. Always a good conversation. I know we could talk about this for another five years, which we will. <laughs> we certainly will. <laughs> but uh, I look forward to seeing you very soon. I'm going to call you next time I'm in New York.
Okay, thank you. Have a good uh, have a good rest of your afternoon. Okay, and you thank too. you for uh, for having me. Of course, anytime. Talk to you soon, Steve. Bye bye.